Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11? Uh, I know last Sunday we did start a new series in Ephesians, but we're going to park that until after Easter. And so today and next week, as you've heard, we're going to be looking at a selection of Easter people, uh, key people who were kind of present or involved during the first ever Holy Week, as it's come to be called. And we're going to think about how certain groups and individuals engaged with and how they reacted to Jesus and how Jesus also engaged with and reacted to them. And so this morning on Palm Sunday, we're going to reflect a little on what happened on that very first day of Holy or, or Passion Week. But we're going to take this a little further than usual. Because I also want to look at what happened the next day. Now, here's a question. Does anyone know what happened on Holy Monday? I don't need any feedback at the moment, but just think about that for a minute. Do you know from Scripture what happened on Holy Monday? Today we, we mark the entry and we celebrate the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on, on a colt, on a donkey. But tomorrow, according to Mark, Jesus re-enters Jerusalem. And if we think Palm Sunday was dramatic, then what happens on Holy Monday is also pretty striking and somewhat shocking. All four gospel writers record the journey of Jesus into Jerusalem but each of them give it their own particular spin. We are going to read this morning Mark's version of events. Trevor's already read a few verses from John's version of events, but we're going to read Mark's version of events, which in some ways is the least detailed. And so, for example, Mark doesn't include that brilliant bit about Jesus telling the Pharisees that see if the disciples are silent, even the very stones that are lying at the side of the road, they would cry out in praise. Mark doesn't make reference to that. Nor does he tell us about that moving moment whenever Jesus actually gets to or almost gets to Jerusalem and he breaks down in tears. Mark doesn't refer to that. Mark's record, if you like, feels a little less colorful. And perhaps one of the notable things about his version of Palm Sunday is how it ends. How it ends. So let's stand together and retell or reread the story according to Mark. It'll be on the screen, but if you do have a Bible or a copy of God's Word, then, then please do turn it. Matt, if we can have the next slide up, that would be great, please. This is Mark 11, reading from verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. So they went, and they found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. 
And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their coats over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Grab a seat. For 90 days, Jesus has been zigzagging his way towards Jerusalem. He had walked along with many others to and through over 30 different locations. And now, he's arrived at his destination. He's arrived at his destiny. Approximately three months earlier, Jesus had resolutely set out for this place, for this city. And now he's arrived. And his arrival coincided, although there was nothing coincidental about it, but his arrival coincided with the annual festival of Passover, the week of celebrating the great exodus from Egypt 1,500 years earlier, whenever the people of God recalled how freedom via sacrifice became part of their story. And as pilgrims, they were making their way to Jerusalem to take part in the various activities. And Jesus and his disciples were among the crowds. And then something strange happens. Or rather, stranger than usual, because for the past 12 weeks, the past 90 days, the past three months, Jesus has been doing a number of unexpected, out of the ordinary things. So for example, according to Mark, if you flick back, if you have a Bible, right at the end of chapter 10, the last thing that Jesus did before the bit we read was he restored the sight of a blind beggar lying at the side of the road who cried out for mercy. Jesus had been doing a number of these kind of things as he zigzagged his way towards Jerusalem. But as Jesus approaches that great city, he instructs two of his disciples to do something strange, to go engage in what appears to be a form of donkey rustling. They are to go and they're to commandeer a donkey, a donkey that has never been ridden before and which will be tied up in a very specific place. And if anyone asks them, what are you doing? As they untie it from outside some owner's house, They are to tell anybody who asks, what are they doing? Listen, the Lord needs it, and you will have it back shortly. So it's not so much donkey rustling, more donkey borrowing. And so the disciples go, and here's the bit. Everything turns out exactly as planned. Or as Jesus had said, the donkey, the colt, is exactly where it should be. The two disciples are questioned about what they're doing. And whenever they reply as they were instructed to reply, they are allowed to take it. They're allowed to borrow it. And so I want to make a number of comments, three actually, about this. To start with, what this seemingly simple incident communicates is that Jesus knew exactly what lay ahead of him. 
You see, as Jesus steps into his final week of life on earth, and as his destiny awaits, he is fully aware of everything that's about to happen, right down to where donkeys will be tied up and what people will say. Nothing, nothing is gonna come as a surprise to Jesus this week. That didn't make it any easier for Jesus. But what it does reveal is that despite the horror of imminent events, despite the prospect of an unfair trial, unfair accusations, abuse, public ridicule, pain, suffering, torture, death, that were now only a matter of days away, Jesus willingly, resolutely walked on. He kept going. He fully entered in. Jesus had predicted his own death on a number of occasions in Mark chapter 8. He had predicted it. Mark chapter 9, he had predicted it. Mark chapter 10, he had predicted it. He knew he was going to be, and he said, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be insulted. I'm going to be spat on. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be killed. Jesus knew all this. But he didn't turn back. He didn't hold back. He walked toward it with his eyes wide open because he knew he had to and because he knew that the salvation of the world depended on it. And so right at the start of Holy Week 2017, and as we read these familiar stories again, may we realize afresh that despite knowing exactly what these next six days would involve and mean, Jesus went ahead. He went ahead, he walked on in order to secure our freedom, our forgiveness, our future. Jesus knew where that donkey would be. He knew what, that, what those people would say. And Jesus knew in graphic detail that he would become nothing, that he would be hung out to death, poured out to death. That he would bear the colossal weight of sin and shame. He knew all of this. And still he did it. He walked on. And if nothing else this Easter, allow that fact alone to shape your worship and your response this week, even to shape how you eat and drink in a few moments. Secondly, and this maybe links with the first comment, but what was going on here, this, this need for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, Jesus had always walked everywhere. Why did he have to ride into Jerusalem now on a donkey? Why did he have to do that? Because this was to fulfill prophecy. This was the explicit fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Matthew's version of Palm Sunday events, he specifically quotes Zechariah 9, 9. John also did to a point, and Trevor read it earlier, but Matthew quotes it fuller because he wants to make sure that people get that what is happening here as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. This has been all carefully and intimately planned, and it directly reveals the identity of the one who is on the donkey. This is your king. This is the promised one. This is the anointed one. This is the one you've been waiting for. 
Jesus commandeering and going for a donkey ride fulfills prophecy. And the final comment that the stage I want to make about these first six verses of Mark 11 relates to the disciples because what I find interesting is that according to Mark, the disciples don't question Jesus at any point. They just go. They untie a donkey. They tell inquirers what they have been told to say. Their obedience to Jesus, despite his rather odd request and command, is worth noting, it's striking. They hear what Jesus says and they just go do. And maybe I'm pushing the point too far, but it strikes me that unless, or rather, it strikes me that because Jesus still asks his disciples to do rather strange and unexpected things, then we must respond to him in obedience. And so Jesus tells us, his followers, to go and do things like love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Forgive those who sin against you. And the challenge for us who are his 21st century followers is, do we react? Or do we just hear and go do? Three things in the first six verses. Jesus knew about everything that lay ahead this week and he still walked on. All of what is going on here is to fulfill prophecy. And obedience to Jesus is a characteristic of true discipleship. But let's go back to the story, verse seven. The disciples throw their coats on the borrowed donkey. Jesus sits on it and he begins this journey towards Jerusalem. And there are lots of people about, remember, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are making their way towards Jerusalem. And Mark tells us that many of these pilgrims, they spread their cloaks out on the road. They spread out cut branches on the road. John is the only gospel writer that tells us they were palm branches. But there's obviously an atmosphere of joy and anticipation, especially whenever you listen to what they shout. They're shouting Hosanna, which literally means save, save now, save us. And so some kind of expectation regarding salvation is tangible. This cry of Hosanna has also become an exclamation of praise. So this sense of this is it, this is it. Something significant is about to happen at the end of this journey. That kind of feeling fills the air. And the people then also grab a quotation. And those of you who know scripture know this is a quotation from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one. This is our one. He is going to sort things out now. This king is going to sort things out. Something big is brewing. Victory is imminent. But as we all know, and this is rushing ahead, although we need to acknowledge it right here and now, the nature of Jesus' victory, the pathway towards it, was so not what people had expected. And they were going to discover that this, this road that Jesus is currently on was, in fact, the road to where it was the road to suffering. It was the road to Calvary. This was a road that was going to lead to a cross, to crucifixion, to humiliation. And that didn't compute. It didn't add up. And therefore, and this is something we'll think about later on this evening, crowds are so fickle. 
Crowds are so fickle whenever things don't go their way or go as they expected them to go. And therefore, many of those who are now on Palm Sunday giving Jesus the red carpet treatment will join a very different crowd baying for his red blood to be spilled on Friday. This isn't the kind of king we were expecting. He's riding into Jerusalem. He's going to sort everything out. He's going to sort the Roman authorities out. It's a road to suffering. And if we go back to Mark 11, and we get to verse 11, and what he says happened on that first Palm Sunday, there is more than a hint of the anticlimax. And I have to be honest, I've, I've never really noticed this before. Verse 11 is fascinating. Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went to the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Can you imagine how those people must have been feeling and processing this? They had joined what they thought was going to end in a victory parade. As one writer I read this week put it, the air fairly crackles with electricity as the characters in this grand drama sense that something big is up. The branches are down, their coats are down. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And when what happens? Jesus just looks around. He inspects everything. And then he heads back to his lodgings in Bethany with his disciples for the night. And what must those people have been thinking? Like, is that it? So much hype. And now we're all home to bed. What now? What now? This day has kind of just petered out. Jesus in this account hasn't even spoken a word. And what exactly did Jesus see as he looked around at everything? Well, that's why I wanted to read on this morning. That's why I wanted to find out and point out what happened on Holy Monday the next day, the day after Palm Sunday. Because whatever Jesus saw, and we'll soon find out, although lots of you already know, whatever he saw on Sunday evening annoyed him. And having slept on it, or maybe not slept much, he gets up on Monday morning and he heads back into the city and to the temple to do something about it. And on his way, and we're not going to read this bit, but on his way back into the temple and into Jerusalem, he curses a fig tree for not producing figs, even though it was not the season to produce figs. Like, how harsh is that? Which at one level seems very, very strange. Was Jesus really that upset by what he had seen the night before? Or was something else going on? Was Jesus indirectly communicating an important lesson, acting out a kind of parable? That's how most people, many people, have read and understood this rather surprising incident. Could it be that Israel's spirituality was summed up at that time in this lesson from the fig tree? Plenty of leaves, but no fruit. 
Was this a reference to yesterday? Lots of branches, but no substance. As will become evident in a few days. Crucify him. Crucify him. But let's go back to the temple. Let's pick up again Mark's reading in verse 15. I don't have it on the screen. You're going to need to see it if you have a copy of God's word. But here's what it says about this re-entry into Jerusalem on Holy Monday. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a a house of prayer for all nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. Is that what Jesus had seen on Sunday night? You see, the temple courts, or the court of the Gentiles, that was meant to have been a place for prayer and preparation but it had been turned into this large outdoor market for buying and selling and exchanging currencies and merchandise. The buying and the selling, that wasn't the issue. The people needed to purchase doves and pigeons, etc., before worship to sacrifice. The problem was where they were selling these things. They, the retailers, had set up shop in the very place that was supposed to be reserved for non-Jews, for Gentiles to come and to pray to God. This was supposed to be, as Jesus said in verse 17, this was meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it into, quoting Jeremiah 7, you have made it into a den of robbers. And so Jesus reacts in a way that must have shocked his disciples and anybody else for that matter. And it still confuses people today. Jesus overturns tables. He's saying stuff flying everywhere. But you know something? Here's the reason. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. He loved the whole world that he gave Jesus. And whenever people who should have known better start turning God's house into a members only club, Whenever they go, in, go out of their way to stop people approaching God, whenever their own gain and comfort comes at the expense of others, that is what breaks Jesus' heart. That is what provokes his righteous anger. And so he clears the place and he opens up the space again for all to draw near to God. Something that he's going to do even more graphically in about three days from now whenever he dies on a cross. And what happens? The temple curtain rips from top to bottom, signifying that immediate and intimate access to the very presence of God is now available to all. Everyone. Stop putting barriers in people's way. This is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You've cluttered the place. You've excluded people. You've turned it into a den of robbers. And in a few days, that temple curtain's gonna rip and immediate access 
into the very presence of God is going to be available for all. And so on Palm Sunday, today as we remember Jesus' first entry into Jerusalem, I hope Mark's version of events will also help us to note, as maybe never before, his re-entry into Jerusalem the day later. To quote one guy, as he reflected on these two days and these two entries, at his first entry, the people welcomed Jesus in. At his second entry, Jesus chases some people out. At his first entry, the people wave branches. At his second entry, Jesus withers a fig tree's branches. At his first entry, people shout, save us. At a second entry, Jesus pleads for the salvation of others. At his first entry, the people shout blessings. At a second entry, Jesus issues curses. And Mark 15, 11 is the link verse. And as I said a moment ago, I've never really noticed it before. I've never really noticed how Palm Sunday ended according to Mark and how Holy Monday played out and what it meant. You see, there is always more to Easter than meets the eye. Always. There is always more to Easter than you realize. And so let me encourage you to reread the final third of Mark's gospel from chapter 11 to the end each day this week and see what else you rediscover. And tonight, we're going to stick with Mark, and we're going to home in on another crowd and two other key Easter people, one of them a crowd pleaser, the other one a complete thug who couldn't believe his luck. But for now, as we gather around this table, may we Give thanks for every aspect of Holy Week and why it's so central. Give thanks that Jesus walked on despite knowing everything that lay ahead of him this week. He did it for you. And give thanks that because he walked on, has the opportunity to draw near to God and rediscover the relationship they were created for. May we eat and drink with fresh eyes this morning.